welcome to the Mental Health Crossroads podcast, where we explore the intersection of mental health and developmental disabilities. This week, Matt Wappet interviews Julie Christensen from the Association of People Supporting Employment First, also known as APSI. We hope you enjoy this interview. Uh, welcome, everybody, to the Mental Health Crossroads podcast. I'm Matt Wappet, the Executive Director of the Center for Persons with Disabilities, and we're joined today by Dr. Julie Christensen. Julie is the Director of Policy and Advocacy and the Interim Executive Director of the Association of People Supporting Employment First, also known as APSI. She also currently serves as the Senior Disability Policy Advisor for the Harkin Institute at Drake University. Prior to joining APSI, Dr. Christensen was the Director of Iowa's University Center for Excellence in Developmental Disabilities at the University of Iowa, where she held a research faculty appointment in the Carver College of Medicine, Department of Psychiatry. Dr. Christensen received her undergraduate degrees in advertising and music from Syracuse University and a master's in social work from Roberts Wesleyan College and her PhD in health practice research at the University of Rochester. And it is our privilege to welcome her here today. So welcome, Julie. Can you tell our listeners a little bit more about APSI? Yeah, thanks for uh, inviting us on. So um, APSI is a uh, national member organization. Um, we are the only national organization that focuses exclusively on employment first, um, facilitating full inclusion of people with disabilities in the workplace and in the community. Um, so we've been around since 1988, things that should roll off my tongue, but uh, long time. Um, and, you know, we are, again, we're a membership organization. So we have a national team here in the DC area. Um, we have 40 state chapters, roughly 3000 individual members. Um, and we're just committed to the movement of all things employment first, making sure that there's real jobs for real pay for all people with disabilities. That's great, thank you. Um... So kind of given that focus on employment, what role does APSI play in supporting people with intellectual and developmental disabilities and <clears throat> mental health concerns? And where, how does your work intersect with those areas? That sure, yeah, so um, APSI is a broad umbrella when it comes to disability. Um, I, I think at different parts in the history of the organization, um, just because, you know, membership organizations, the membership body itself changes and fluctuates over time. Um, so I think we've, we've been known to be um, really engaged in the IDD space for a long time, largely because we have many members in the DD network, um, you know, whether it's through the USEDs or the DD councils or the protection advocacy, even some of the um, independent living centers, we have members across the country. Um, but we are broad lens. And um, I think we've had to be really intentional about that, especially in the last couple of years um, in moving away from that um, lens of IDD. I think we started there in one of, one of the ways where in just in terms of my work that I think about it is that when I think about people with the most significant disabilities, if we can figure out how to make employment a reality for them. It's kind of like a universal design concept, right? Like if you if you focus on the work for from the perspective of the people with the most significant barriers to employment, then everyone benefits. Um, 
that being said, and as a former mental health practitioner, um, I certainly recognize that we have not um, always historically been as intentional on the mental health side of the equation, um, but it is definitely part of what we do. Um, we are increasingly looking at strategic partnerships with um, different entities that have uh, different content expertise that can help our members. Um, just, just as an example, we are uh, really trying to work very closely with um, Paralyzed Veterans of America and other organizations and thinking about the needs of uh, returning veterans who are often struggling with PTSD and, and other mental health related issues. And so, you know, even those types of partnerships help us um, help us help our members think broadly about um, disability as being, you know, across the spectrum. I think you bring up some really good points there. And I mean, that it's almost a universal design approach that you're taking, right? If you would design for, you know, the most significant you're gonna create supports and structures and policies and procedures that really benefit everybody and that I think that's a really important um, point for people to keep in mind here so um, so everybody has a personal story and everybody especially within the disability field there's something that drives them so really how did you end up in this in this role and why are employment issues specifically important to you I am probably like many people in this field it, when I say it happened by accident, <laughs> by lucky accident. Um, so I know you uh, rattled off my bio earlier. Um, I went to college with the intention of working on public service advertising. Um, and so my undergraduate degree in advertising and graphic design um, it's kind of an interesting twisty turvy to get from there to here because my motivation for doing that, um, having grown up in Berkeley, California, is that I wanted to do something with my life that would make a difference. Um, and so, you know, fate intervenes and I did do the advertising thing and, um, you know, at some point realized the limitations of the field that I was in and sitting in a um, conference room one day arguing about the color of a font on a billboard made me think, hmm, maybe this isn't exactly what I thought I was getting into in trying to use my time um, to help leave the world a better place than, you know, what I find it, which was my end goal. And so that led me down the path that I'm in now. Um, my clinical background is in uh, adolescent mental health and where disability came in a truly was completely by accident. Um, I did a lot of community-based work, um, working primarily with inner city um, youth living in extreme poverty and did just a lot of cross systems um, projects. And so kind of had that reputation. And I was asked to just cover a youth group of kids with disabilities um, and I, was terrified because I was like, well, I don't know. <laughs> you know? Um, and ironically, you know, I was a school social worker. Clearly, you know, I knew these kids, but I there was something in the way it was framed to me. You know, this is a social group for kids with disabilities. Can, you know, I was brought in because I work with kids and I was like, oh, but they have disabilities. I don't know that part. And, um, and that actually kind of became the Lynch point in my career because it was so um, it was such a great learning moment for me to walk in the room and realize 
that I was one of the people that was perpetuating the stigma of disability. I fundamentally got stuck and got scared as a clinician by the term of disability and then realized when I got there and started hanging out with these amazing humans um, that they're just people <laughs> and have the same needs and, and the same desires. And um, so, you know, th that kind of kicked it all off. Uh, how I got into employment, um, I think was lucky accident, but um, I just very, I fell in love with the work, um, partially because I fell in love with the community that does the work. Um, so, you know, the Employment First community, which is not just APSI, APSI is a piece of it, um, is just an amazing, eclectic, passionate, opinionated group of people. <laughs> um, we were talking recently about our the APSI National Conference, which I attended for years before I was on the national um, APSI team. And I <laughs> made the comment, I was like, you know, it's kind of like going to summer camp that, you know, every single person there is committed to the outcome, improving employment outcomes for people with disabilities. And, and if you work in any aspect in the disability space, um, you know the literature and the research that speaks to how if, if we solve the issue of employment, it helps everything else. <laughs> um, and so that piece just makes sense. Um, and yet, you know, the people who do this work are underpaid, not necessarily thought of as, you know, the cream of the crop, you know, um, stepping stone career is a term that we often hear uh, related to job coaches and job developers. And yet, as you get to know the people who are doing this work every single day, they truly are some of the most innovative, scrappy, um, committed people. Uh, they also know how to have fun and I like to have fun. So it's a good match. <laughs> That's true. It does take a it does take a certain amount of grit and resilience to work in the employment space because uh, yeah, it's like going up to battle every single day. Sometimes. <laughs> so um, it's interesting what you brought up about starting in the mental health field and then feeling like you know being I guess using your words a, a little bit afraid right, of disability. And we see that, those of us who come from the disability side frequently see it the other way. We come from the disability side and we're afraid of, right, the mental health side. And there's always been this division between those two worlds. And that's where, you know, this project I think is important, really trying to bridge the gap between um, the stigma on both sides and really trying to recognize that um, mental health is a concern for everybody, regardless of whether you have a disability or not. One of the interesting things, um, and I want to dig into a little bit of what you were saying about employment earlier, um, is that employment is really important for mental health. Um, for recovery. Yeah, why, why is that? What is it about employment that really um, helps support somebody in their recovery and in their mental health and just in their belonging in the community? Yeah, so it's interesting. And so not unique to mental health. Um, you know, something we talk about just in disability employment broadly is, you know, when, especially as adults, when you're meeting someone for the first time, the first, almost always, the first question people ask other than your name is what do you do? Um, and so how you spend your time as a professional member of society is an integral part of our 
psyche. It's right or wrong, it's how Americans choose to prioritize how we define ourselves and put ourselves in buckets. Um, and so if you don't have access to that, um, then you're missing a piece of identity that gives you entry into society as a whole. Um, so that that's the big umbrella piece. Um, I think, you know, with mental health, it's interesting. Um, I had some fantastic colleagues when I was at the University of Iowa um, and worked in the Department of Psychiatry who really focus on employment as part of recovery for mental health. Um, and so taking it a step beyond just that, you know, we all want to belong, we all want to, you know, be able to define who we are. Um, we have such amazing um, and conclusive research that speaks to individuals with mental health challenges, diagnoses, um, who are not employed are more likely to be engaging in substance abuse, more likely to be self-harming, more likely to be alienating, uh, self-alienating, um, just not connected. Um, and so then you think about the converse, what does employment do for you? It's, you know, part of it is it's about having a purpose. Um, part of it is just the reality of if you're working, you have responsibilities. There's a reason to get up in the morning. There's a place to go. There's somebody looking, you know, who's waiting for you. And there's a lot of different benefits, um, you know, bi-directionally in that regard um, between employer and employee. Um, but also you're more likely to have health care which means you're more likely to be able to have the resources to address mental health concerns, um, whether it's access to a therapist or um, in my case, you know, I take antidepressants for, you know, I have ADHD and I, it, that manifests in anxiety. And so that's, I can do that because I have healthcare <laughs> that pays for that. And I have doctors who will prescribe it um, and those ongoing touch points. So, you know, that, that's, just pieces and parts. Um, so, you know, it, it's partially identity, it's partially self-esteem, it's partially overall quality of life um, and the ability to have access to what you need to manage and mitigate, you know, the issues that you might be facing. Your comment about the healthcare side and is so important. The fact that in the U.S. our healthcare is tied to our employment and you know, if you know that you have health insurance and you know that you have that support, that becomes a bit, people will put up with terrible jobs for a very long time just to maintain that health yep. insurance. And that's one of the things that continues to be, I don't know, I think that's a separate interview, I guess. That's a different. Exactly. <laughs> and, and I can say from experience, I have lived that. <laughs> it's a difficult one, but it's, it's just, so, it seems to be so backwards. But anyway, um, yeah. That's a, that's a tricky one. So given sort of your perspective and your background, you've probably seen you know, the, the mental health field and the developmental disabilities field approach employment supports in different ways. Um, or maybe not, or maybe you have a different perspective. So I, from your perspective, how do the mental health and DD fields approach employment supports and maybe how could they more effectively work together? Yeah, it's a great question. And I'm actually going to start it by going on a little bit of a tangent. Sorry, ADHD brain. Um, <laughs> but but when you were talking earlier about, you know, that fear of, you know, I started in the mental health side, and then I had a fear of disability. And ironically, as I was preparing 
for this discussion, I had the opposite fear because I've been in the IDD world for so long that my immediate response was, I don't understand mental health. I'm not an expert. I'm pretty sure that's the first thing I said to you when, uh, <laughs> when no. you first talked about Riddle. doing this. And, and part of that certainly is my own, you know, well-documented imposter syndrome and, you know, perfectionist overachiever nature. But um, regardless, um, it's interesting to kind of have bounced back and forth, um, because the reality is that we do things in such silos and, and our systems are largely to blame for that. Um, but the processes and the end goals and the strategies in and of themselves are not that different. Perhaps the wraparound supports are different. Um, you know, if, if you're someone in recovery with a substance abuse type of a situation, your follow-up and wraparound and, and check-ins are very different than the wraparound supports we might put in place for someone with a significant physical disability that needs support getting to and from work. Um, but that doesn't mean that the fundamental processes of thinking about who an individual is, what their interests are, what their superpowers are, um, and thinking through how to help support find that, finding that match. Um, and then wrapping around what's needed once that match is found for, uh, for individuals to remain successful and to grow and you know, evolve in their careers. That piece I think is fundamentally the same. Um, I, I know that I have colleagues on both sides who would yep. get into the weeds about different types of um, interventions. Um, and you know, I, one of my biggest pet peeves in the employment first arena is that we spend so much time arguing over what's better, supported employment or customized employment or discovery or fill in the blank. And it, it sort of astounds me that you know, anyone thinks that there's a silver bullet that magically solves this problem. Because um, clearly if that were the case, we wouldn't have the same unemployment rates for people with disabilities and, and mental health um, disorders, I hate that word, disordered mental health diagnoses um, that we've had for years, decades. So, yep. so you know, I, the, the practicality of the day-to-day -day intervention, I think this is just my philosophy. It's less about, is it someone um, struggling with mental health versus having an intellectual disability versus having a physical disability? It's all individualized. It's all about figuring out what someone needs to be successful. Um, and that's true if you don't have a disability, right? Like, yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah, um, so so I that's the lens that I take on it. I, I try not to get too caught up in the uh, turf war, but then the reality is as a former you know practitioner um, working in, I'll, I'll pick on the state of New York um, who is not unique, <laughs> yeah. but yeah. you know, the mental health system was over here and the DD system was over here and God forbid you were duly diagnosed. Um, and someone in a school system when you're in second or third grade basically charts which direction you go down. And because there was no interaction, um, you know, I worked with transition age youth. So all of a sudden, you know, we have young adults at 20, 21 years old getting ready to exit the school system. And we're realizing they've been getting mental health supports all this time, um, but really they'd be better served in the DD system or vice versa, um, because it's what is the presenting concern at this moment that is the barrier and how do you address that? And so I think when structurally 
we set up our funding streams um, and our service delivery systems to be so completely separated, it makes it really hard. Um, it does. And I think there's a lot of people who end up in limbo and probably end up not getting all the services that they need as a result of that, because you go to the mental health side and you're like, okay, well, we'll do this, but you've got this condition. And so you need to go work with the DD side. The DD side says, that's great, but you've got this condition. You need to work with that side. And I know at least here in Utah, where we are, people sometimes get bounced between those two and end up not really getting the supports that they need. They fall between the cracks and they occasionally get forgotten. Right unfortunately. And I mean, I think your comment about New York is exactly what I've seen in many states. Um, yeah, the mental health uses one particular model for supported employment or whatever their particular approach is. And then the DD agencies use a completely different model. Um, and there's not a whole lot of coordination that occurs sure. between sure. those two. And it's, yeah, it can be very problematic. Although, you know, I'll also say having lived and worked in Iowa, um, Iowa is a state that mental health and DD is under the same state system. And that blew my mind when I moved to Iowa, <laughs> having navigated the, you know, the two silos that will never meet and talk oh. to each other and sit in a room together. And that's unfair to New York, but awesome people at um, both state agencies doing amazing work and working together, but the barriers exist. Yeah. But Iowa, it was combined. And yet, <laughs> you yeah. still, you know, it, and so I don't know, I don't know if part of it is, you know, that earlier conversation about, you know, we, we build an area of expertise that allays our fears as practitioners um, and makes us feel competent and it just feels too big to be yeah. an expert at both. Yeah. Um, but I, I'm, I'm not sure outside of some of the, you know, just really concrete medical pieces of different needs for different diagnoses, that's not the world of employment. We don't need to be that specialized, right, yeah. you know, fundamental concepts apply and, you know, we should be yeah. able to, to help whomever. Yeah, I think we do have a tendency to overthink these things and over-specialize yes. maybe when we don't need to. Yes. But also on that note, I do think also, uh, and you mentioned this in your earlier response, I think a part of that division is the funding streams and the fact sure. that funding comes through two separate um, sort of streams and you qualify for one and maybe you don't qualify for the other and you know the requirements and the supports and everything else that come through those funding streams um, maintain sure that separation and you know figuring out how to braid funding and how to really um, facilitate that collaboration um, yeah essential to successful supports and you know and I'll just say in the employment space in general um, this is like the bane of my existence now working at a national level is that there is no everyone wants a recipe for how to do it but you know VR and Medicaid in every single state is different yeah. Um, so, you know, in New York, one of the challenges might have been that if you were receiving services from the DD system, providers typically either were DD or mental health. 
Um, and so if you have to switch systems, you're talking about bouncing around, you're talking about switching everything, your case managers, your respite, you know, yeah. a, a, a complete separation. That's, and that's unique to one you know, particular scenario, um, not necessarily the same case in Iowa, but still, um, yeah, it just, it shouldn't be this complicated. Yeah. Um, but you're right, the, it's, it's just a difficult thing to unpack because where does the, um, who's responsible for that? Is it the federal government in figuring out, you know, how yeah. do we all work together um, versus, you know, is it states? Yep. You know, we're not going to have a partisan conversation here today. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there are differences of opinion on that, right? And I, you yep. know, I'm an independent, equal opportunity critic of both sides. Um, yep. <laughs> but, you know, but the it, it's thing easy to point fingers at it's the other's responsibility rather than to dig in and actually do the work, I guess. Is my I think that's exactly it. And that's something that I've noticed in, in many situations. Well, that's a federal issue. We can't deal with that. Oh, sorry, that's a state issue. We can't deal with it. Or that's even a local issue. Um, you know, that's something that the local health, um, health and welfare agency needs to deal with. And there's always somebody to pass the buck sometimes. And in that process, I think people do fall between the cracks, as I said before. And yeah. Sure. Anyway, but we can complain. We're not going to complain. So anyway, as an expert in this field, I mean, this is what your doctoral research is on. This is what you've done for years. I mean, you know the evidence. What strategies are the most effective for supporting employees um, with disabilities and mental health issues? Which ones work for everybody? Huh, well. <laughs> That's a big question. Um, I know. Maybe we should break that down. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, across the board, um, I think, Supported employment is probably the most researched um, evidence-based way of addressing the issue of employment. Um, there are, you know, in the in the mental health space, the um, IPS model, individual um, is it individual placements and supports. I should know that, um, which is a supported employment model, but also wrapped around some other pieces and parts that are unique to mental health issues. Um, and so in some ways it's, it's kind of ironic to me because we're gonna slap a different name on doing essentially the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, I mean, it fundamentally is supported employment, um, but, you know, I think that there is a recognition that, you know, there are, there are similarities by diagnoses in the types of um, strategies that work or don't work. Um, you know, even on the DD side, there are things that we know are um, work for individuals with autism um, that may or may not be helpful to someone with Down syndrome. <laughs> you know, we yeah. fundamentally get that. Um, and yet, you know, we haven't crossed that barrier between the mental health and the IDD side to recognize that, you know, it doesn't matter which of those systems your diagnosis falls, there are unique strategies that can help. But I mean, I think supported employment itself, the, the concept of um, having someone you can work with side by side who can help break down some of the, the individual barriers, you know, help you figure out how to translate your, I call skills, superpowers. Yeah, but 
cheesy thing I do. Um, but you know, how do you know what you're really good at? And how do you translate that into a document or more increasingly these days, um, enter it into a um, web-based application that shows your strengths? Um, you know, some people need help with that. And, and so, you know, that, or, you know, you start a new job, <laughs> just thinking about um, when I was overseeing project search programs in New York, and, um, you know, we had individuals who were really interested in working in hospitals in um, environmental services was, I guess, what it was called, really, really, really complex jobs. I mean, these are, you know, there's one set of rules and, and types of equipment you use to sterilize the ER versus, you know, oh. if you're taking apart an incubator in the NICU, um, it's a whole different process. And, you know, and here we have individuals with, you know, intellectual disabilities who are absolutely capable of doing these jobs. But what we needed was a supported employment professional to work with that business to break down what was typically a two-day orientation for a new employee into something that was done in manageable chunks and taught over time um, to come up with the same outcome, right? So, I mean, that's what supported employment is really about. It's, you know, not asking, not asking businesses to be experts in how to, you know, reinterpret job descriptions. Yeah. You know, like businesses do business things, um, but we have a workforce who is skilled at that translational piece uh, and can be that expert and can be that, you know, conduit as a resource both to the business, but most importantly, and first and foremost, an advocate for an individual who is seeking a job um, and helping to, you know, create those opportunities. Um, I, I think we've, we've evolved quite a bit over the decades of supported employment in um, putting, you know, person-centered planning forward and, and self-determination. And, you know, we, we certainly struggle with well-meaning job coaches who have a hard time stepping out of the way, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and, but the concept is still there that, you know, you're not doing this alone. Um, it's just support until you don't need it anymore. I, I like that notion of translational that you brought up and professionals who are trained and how to, yeah, because I think a lot of times businesses, and I've worked in many, um, have unrealistic expectations of everybody. <laughs> and yeah, and, and really somebody who can help make that accessible and, and provide the support for somebody to be successful. You know, thinking about it is not something that would just help people with disabilities or mental health issues. There's many other people. And again, going back to the universal design concept, um, you know, the one thing that I continue, and maybe I think in the wrong way, I don't know. Um, but uh, a lot of these lessons that we're learning are lessons that would benefit everybody and that would make our workplaces more humane, more supportive, Correct. more inclusive in the long run. Um, Correct. And yet again, well, you know, Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say you you're an education dude. Um, you know, in the K-12 school system, if someone struggles with reading, we send in a reading specialist. Nope. It's not the general ed teacher or if you're in high school, the algebra teacher that has to figure out those strategies. You bring in someone with expertise to help connect the dots. 
that's yeah. what supported employment is. Right. Um, I mean, really, it's that simple to me philosophically. Um, yeah. That intermediary to help businesses, you know, business leaders who are not experts. You know, they want to make money. They want to, you know, that is their job. <laughs> Our job yeah. is to help your employees who might need things translated in a different way um, understand what the expectations are and perform at their best. So I'm going to, I'm going to throw a curveball here. Yay. It's not, um, it's not a question in here, but um, I know that you had the uh, webinar earlier this week with Paul Wayman and everybody on translational research and employment. What are some of the most exciting things happening in employment research today? Oh man. I know. It's I didn't like, even give you a like, chance to think about that one. It's <laughs> like you think that I have time to actually read. I mean, honestly, yeah. so totally selfishly on my part, <laughs> one of the reasons for wanting to do that webinar series is because you know, those of us who really, those of us who even feel comfortable opening up a journal and digging oh. into it and can understand it, um, it does, that doesn't mean we have the time. Um, right. And so, you know, that one of my hopes with this webinar series is to just take the emerging stuff um, and make it accessible to, to folks who are super busy. Um, that being said, you know, and, and I guess this isn't quite answering your question because I think the research is catching up. Um, but a major issue right now is thinking about what a post-COVID workforce looks like. Um, so we've had to learn very quickly um, ways to utilize technology um, yeah. to provide supports. Um, and that changes the nature of a lot of things. But beyond that, uh, I was getting a briefing from some economy folks for the new administration and, and someone made the comment that, you know, the, this COVID-19 pandemic is our generation's version of the industrial revolution in terms of the impact on business. Um, it is never going to look the same. And, you know, and then I sit there and think, man, you know, like to me, that's an opportunity. It, so here's where I get a little Pollyanna and I drive people nuts, but what we had in the system that we built with the best of intentions pre-COVID was failing a heck of a lot of people. And we were not moving the needle on disability employment. And so there's part of me that's like super excited just to see, you know, some of the emerging research. It's going to be a while till we really understand, you know, what works and what doesn't and what's sustainable and, you know, the long-term impact of, you know, doing services on FaceTime versus hopping in your car and doing it face-to-face -face and when you need to do what. Um, but it's a super exciting time to really just break down all of our preconceived notions um, and to really think strategically as an employment first community that, you know, it's interesting because the value of work, I think, has shifted. People with disabilities tend to be overrepresented in, you know, grocery store jobs, <laughs> you know, um, because they were relatively easy to train for and get people, you know, placed in a service system that only gives you so many hours to do that. Um, and then all of a sudden we have people with disabilities 
who are the essential workers in the middle of a pandemic, who are the ones showing up to work every day and making sure that the economy can keep running. Um, so we have to have a different conversation about the role that people with disabilities play in our economy as a whole, but also we need to be having the backup conversations. You know, the, when we think about opportunities for remote work, um, you know, that changes the dynamics of who has access to the workforce now and what types of jobs they have access to, but have we done the back end work of ensuring that people with disabilities are, have access and training to how to use technology. That may not have been the highest priority on their IEP, yep. <laughs> but it probably needs to be moving forward. Um, yep. So, you know, it's kind of a, a I guess, um, a cheater way of answering your question, but those are the emerging areas that I'm starting to see the literature come out and I'm super excited to see where it goes and how we can actually change the landscape in terms yeah. of our expectations and, and ultimately participation of people with disabilities in the workforce. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a great answer. Um, and I do think, you know, that post COVID work world is gonna look, the, the genie has been let out of the bottle and it's not going to go back in. I mean, the way that we interface with tech and the way that um, we structure our work day and our workplace and everything else, I think it's going to look significantly different. Moving into I'll add a note of caution to that, though, um, because certainly in the disability employment space, there's been a lot of celebration of, you know, prior to the pandemic, one of the barriers to employment was um, often that people with disabilities would ask for accommodations like remote work. And businesses yeah. would say, no, that's not how we do things. And all of a sudden we can, <laughs> and, oh. you know, we, we, we can talk about the, uh, the civil rights aspect of that on a, another podcast. But anyway, yeah. I digress. Um, yeah. but, but the flip side, I think we have to be really cautious about that we don't turn the pendulum the other direction and find ourselves in a situation where, you know, for a, we've been fighting institutionalization for a long time. Um, in the employment space, it's been about, you know, phasing out of facility-based employment sheltered workshops, 14C yep. settings. Um, are we any better if the end result is that people with disabilities are isolated in their homes working remotely? Does that let us off the hook as a society in really thinking about workplace inclusion? Because there's always going to be the need for people to go somewhere to perform a service. And, yep. and so that, it, that just is something that sits in my mind and occasionally keeps me up at night and, and thinking, you know, I don't wanna, I don't want us to get so excited about breaking down one barrier that we create another. Yep, yep. No, you're, I, I think, yeah, you hit the nail on the head. That's actually been something that we've thought about a bit here is, thinking how does this post-COVID work world and you know the especially the HCBS settings rule and some of those community integration mandates, what do those look like in a world where maybe we are working more remotely and how, you know, what does inclusion look like if everybody's in a different location? I mean, there's a lot of, I think, unknowns that we need to be mindful of and, you know, keeping those civil rights and um, just sort of the intent. I think of the legislation that's out there in mind as we do that, it's gonna be really important. So, um, so 
kind of on the theme of the pandemic. The pandemic's been rough on everybody. It's going on and there's really no, we have vaccines now, but there's no end in sight. What strategies have you found to be effective in supporting your own mental health during the pandemic specifically? <laughs> um, <laughs> so it's doing all the things that everybody tells you you should be doing, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, in a non-pandemic world, there's so much to do and you need to use every possible minute. And so things like, you know, exercising regularly. Um, one of the first things I did, um, I typically door to door for me to get from my house to a Senate office building. Takes about 45 minutes. Um, and so early on in the stay at home, whatever <laughs> world that we live in, I was like, okay, well, I'm just gonna replace that 45 minutes with going on a walk. Um, and, you know, now almost a year in, it's more like, you know, I go out for four or five miles a day. So beyond that 45 minutes, because, you know, after a while it becomes part of your routine and 45 minutes does, doesn't quite feel like enough. And, you know, those are things I could have been doing all along, but didn't. <laughs> So, you know, that's part of it, um, you know, getting out and, and moving and, and getting fresh air and communing with nature. Um, I also set a rule for myself that I no longer work weekends. Um, so, you know, at roughly six o'clock on Friday night, um, you know, everything gets turned off and it doesn't come back on until 6 a.m. on Monday morning. Um, just because I need a break. I mean, I, I work in public policy, so God knows I've needed a break. In <laughs> 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 the last few years have been uh, busy. A lot going the last on. four weeks. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so, you know, and, and part of that was because I just recognized, you know, it's like boom, boom, boom. And, you know, this remote work piece, I, I don't have time to think anymore. That's one of the first things I realized is, you know, I go from Zoom meeting to Zoom meeting to Zoom meeting. And at some point I was like, man, I really miss that 15 minute train ride to get to the next meeting because it was just enough time to shut my brain off of that issue and prep it for the next issue. And, yeah. and that 45 minute train ride home when I would plug in an audiobook and just not think about work, cut it off for the day versus, you know, in the beginning of this sort of stay at home 24 seven mania, there was no shutting off. Um, you know, I was just working all day long, <laughs> you know, might pause and have dinner. <laughs> so I just, I had to put some boundaries in place and they're boundaries that quite frankly, I should have had all along. Um, my weekends are very boring. I read books, take naps, and currently I'm binge watching Vampire Diaries because it's completely brainless and that's what I need. <laughs> um, you know, th those are my Saturdays and Sundays and then I get up and do it again on Monday morning. Um, so, I mean, those are, lovely. that's some of it. Um, you know, that, that it's, it's nothing, you know, weird. I, I did with some reservation up my dosage of Adderall at some point, actually I've done it twice. <laughs> um, but, but frankly, that is better than some of the, you know, alternative ways in which I have throughout my life tried to manage the way that my brain runs amok. <laughs> but, you know, that's another part of this new world of just, you know, flipping from thing to thing to thing to thing. And, 
um, you know, and, and I'm at peace with that, you know, it's whatever, whatever we need to do to keep ourselves going and reminding myself, I'm, I'm really grateful. I work with such an incredibly great team of all women, which I will acknowledge is hard for me. I, I typically seem to yeah. struggle with females. Um, females are not nice to each other. <laughs> but uh, but anyway, amazing, amazing group of women that I think we just have a commitment to each other of just checking in and having grace. You know, like if if somebody's just not feeling it, and you know, and now I'm in a position of theoretically, I guess I'm their boss, but that's not the type of relationship we have, um, or at least not the type of relationship I want to have. But you know, my right. immediate reaction is if you're not feeling it, man, take the day. Because if you just bust through, then you're no good tomorrow and the day after and the day after that. Um, and so again, yeah. I mean, this is all stuff we knew, you know, all the wellness people who make tons of money with their, you know, self-help books and whatever, you know, they've been telling us this forever. We've just never done it. And yeah. So do it. Yeah. That's my advice to people. <laughs> there you go. Back to Nike. Just do it. <laughs> <laughs> naps. I highly, I highly recommend naps. I we actually, <laughs> the national team now has, um, we have napsies. Wow. <laughs> you know, every once, every once in a while, you know, the day just gets overwhelming and someone will, I am, we're a completely remote team, you know, so someone will, I am and say, I need a napsy. <laughs> I'm going to be offline for 30 minutes. Um, so yeah, you know, the, I, these are the things that I hope, whatever the new normal is that we maintain. That's a, that's really kind of cool. That's a supportive workplace right there. And you can just say, I'm taking a nap and nobody's going to judge you. Nobody's going to say, because I mean, yeah, you're right. The research shows that sleep and naps particularly can be incredibly helpful to your mental health and to your productivity and to everything else. And you're right. We've known this for years, but nobody's actually done it. So right. glad and, to see Well, and the reality is in a virtual environment, we all make ourselves available beyond a typical work day. Right. So I have no hesitation whatsoever to say, you know, you need to go take a 30 minute nap because I know you're probably online at 11 o'clock tonight. <laughs> you know? oh. it, yeah. it should be about, are we making progress on the work? Um, yeah. So, I mean, to bring that full circle for people with disabilities, that's a whole other avenue that we have to figure out how to make space for. Um, because for most people with disabilities, they are relegated to kind of these typical punch the clock um, type jobs. And, you know, we're all dealing with stuff. And, you know, if you already have, um, you know, mental health, ongoing mental health issues that you're dealing with pre-pandemic and then put this on top of that, I mean, we just have to figure out how to have grace with each other and, and you know, do this differently. Yeah. You are exactly that was right. A very long. Answer. That was a great. That that may be the best <laughs> answer we've ever had. It's just so honest, and I think really acknowledges the reality of the world that we're living in. Because you're right, we we're everybody wrote these books about you know the ADD work culture prior to the pandemic. It has become so much worse because you don't get those breaks. You don't walk from even walking across campus here. 
you know, from one meeting to the other gave me a break. But now it's literally, I'm going to get off this call and I'm going to get on another one one minute later. And I don't have time to shift my yeah. thinking. And that takes a toll. It's not healthy. You know, it, so here's the other thing that I've added. And I will just, this is totally selfish of me because I want the rest of the world to join me in this. Um, and since we're on video, you can actually see that I am still, what is it, 3.30? I am still decked out in the clothes that I went out and walked five miles in this morning. I have not had a chance to take a shower. Um, and so I have embraced come as you are to a meeting. First of all, I resent the fact I have to be on video 24 seven. Um, yeah. And so I think we need to, to have some allowances that it's okay to turn your camera off. Um, but in most of the scenarios I find myself in that is not acceptable to turn your camera off and so you know yep. um, yesterday I similarly had a kind of a hit the ground running sort of a day and also did not change out of my workout clothes till after 6 p.m and <laughs> so I was on video calls with a little winter hat on with you know congressional staffers I don't care yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And, and I, I hope that they don't either. And I hope that we can, uh, you know, not worry so much about, do you look the part as much as we judge each other for the quality of the work that gets done? Yeah, I think, I, I think things are relaxing that way. I hope so. I actually realized yesterday we had a big event. We had our disability advocacy day yesterday here and I had to speak on it. I actually put on a tie yesterday and I realized it's the first time since Disability Advocacy Day last January that I had put on a tie, which has been really nice actually. Wearing ties is awful, but um, the fact that I've been able to go a year and I'm not wearing sport coats and yep. you know, dress clothes to work every day, it's, it's, it has made, that, that aspect of it has been a lot more relaxing. And just when you feel comfortable, you tend to be a little more comfortable. Um, when you don't feel comfortable, then yeah, you get uptight. And I think it reflects in your interactions and performance, but yeah. Well, I'll bring it back around though. So, you know, working with transition age youth with disabilities, one of the barriers to employment is not necessarily having the resources to have a professional wardrobe and this, that, and the other thing. And, you know, again, if we can get past looking the part and yep. evaluate people for the skills that they bring to the table and their ability to do the job, then I think we're yep. all done. Yep. It does, level the, it does level the playing field quite a bit. <laughs> yeah, no, that's really good. It, uh, I, I didn't appreciate how much COVID has leveled the employment playing field till we started doing some job interviews this spring, well, this January for faculty. And it's the first time we, they've lifted the hiring freeze. They're trying to rehire faculty here everything's on video. And so people aren't flying out here. People aren't spending the day with the committee um, and everything, it, it, the playing field's been completely level. You're just on video. It's just what the interaction is between you and the screen. Um, and you really notice how much is, how much of that hiring was about appearance and was about how you interacted in those informal Sure. in between spaces and it does sure. and I actually hadn't thought about it until just last week actually which is kind of embarrassing but um, yeah it has changed that that hiring and just that that evaluating who's going to really fit with your work culture and and in the disability employment space often to the detriment um, yeah so so I'll add on to some of the emerging literature that I'm super excited about 
um, is some of the work that is being done looking at the ways in which artificial intelligence is replacing some HR functions and it's a barrier to people with disabilities, especially sensory disabilities. Um, if you're someone with autism who does not make eye contact um, and you're screened out because an AI robot says you did not lift your eyes up to the camera, um, you know, <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. There, there's, a, there's a certain amount of, you know, something we assume just because we want people to be good human beings that, you know, if someone has an obvious disability, um, there's a little bit of a benefit of the doubt to look deeper than just appearance, right? Yeah, um, but yeah. sometimes a virtual environment masks that entirely. And for some people, that's great. And for other people, it puts them at a significant disadvantage. Um, yeah. So we got to figure that. that stuff out too. Yeah. So much a to lot do. Of, there's a lot of work to do. <laughs> <laughs> well, Julie, this has been absolutely delightful. You truly are one of the most intelligent people I know. So thank you for your time yeah. and just for your thoughts. And um, Thanks for yeah. the invite. So how can people get involved with your work at APSI? So... Um, so we are a member organization. We do have members in all 50 states, in all of the territories, in several other countries. Um, so there's individual memberships um, that get you access to communities of practice and, and different, you know, depending on what getting involved means. I mean, we, we are a national organization with a staff of six people. Yeah. <laughs> we rely heavily <laughs> on our national board of directors, our state boards, our member volunteers who you know sit on committees and, and help us get stuff done um and and so you know that's that's the quick and easy way is um you know certainly if they're if you're in one of the states where our 40 chapters currently reside um that's local connections and if there's not a chapter in your state we can help you start one um or get you connected to a neighbor state <laughs> you know whatever works um, but lots of ways to get involved. Um, certainly with on, on the policy front, we are working really hard to just create different avenues to get information out to people. Um, and, and some of that is more active than others. We frankly have meetings that people just show up because they need kind of a plain language, break it down for me. What does all of this mean? Opportunity to sit and listen. Um, and then we have other people who are in the weeds of rewriting waiver applications in their states and want to connect with people doing similar work in other states. Um, so, you know, we have all of those mechanisms to do that. So I think there's a lot of different ways to get involved. Um, and I, it just starts with, if you go to our website, which is www.apse.org. All the information there for how to contact us. Um, you can contact me directly. I, they make it very easy to find me. My email address is julie at apsi.org. <laughs> there we go. But yeah. Perfect. Well, thank you for your time today, Julie. This has been a delightful conversation, and uh, we'll have to have you back for a follow-up. Anytime. Thank you for listening to this episode of the MHDD Crossroads podcast, where we explore the intersection of mental health and developmental disabilities. For more resources and training, visit our website at mhddcenter.org and follow us on social media at mhddcenter. Thank you.